This morning we return to our ongoing sermon series this spring on the early chapters of the book of Genesis, picking up in Genesis 8, verse 1, continuing to chapter 9, verse 7. Just to briefly set the context here before we read our sermon text, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Genesis. Remember, in the early part of Genesis 6, God has drawn near to the earth and he evaluates the human race. He finds that humanity has become corrupt, that, quote, every intention of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. Through the influence of of Cain and his unrepentant sin, through the intermarriage between the line of Seth and Cain, um, God sees that the human race is full of violence and wickedness, unrestrained evil. And remember, part of the dynamic here is that humanity is not living a brief period of time as we do typically in this day and age, but they're living for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, even close to a thousand years. And so their wickedness is exponential in that sense as it is passed from generation to generation. And so God determines to judge the evil and wickedness of the world. He determines to blot out man whom he has made by means of a worldwide flood. However, in the midst of this judgment, God also determines to rescue and preserve a people for himself, a people who will endure through his judgment and come out on the other side to a new world by means of the judgment that he has brought. This is the church here. And so he chooses Noah, a righteous man, along with his wife and and Noah's sons and their wives. And he gives Noah very precise instructions on how to build a, a giant wooden house called an ark, much how God would one day, years later, give Moses very precise instruction on how to build a nice uh, a wooden house called a tabernacle. And this ark that Noah builds, it will be like the tabernacle, the vessel of salvation. Not for him only, but also for his wife and, his, and their children and their wives and, and also representatives of the animal kingdom. God will deliver his creation, in a sense, through uh, this ark. He will put his creation to death, but he will raise it from the dead through this ark. You see, God in his judgment does not intend to destroy the world and bring it to an end. Instead, he intends to preserve the world, to cleanse it, to put it to death, and to bring about through its resurrection a new world, a new creation. And so then in chapter 7 we read about how God did these things. Noah and his family and the animals go into the ark, and God shuts the door behind them. God seals them in, and they will be in this ark, as we learn in our reading today, for about a year before they emerge again. After they go into the ark, God, we read, opens the floodgates of the deep and of the heavens, the waters from below and from above, and it rains for 40 days until, as Genesis 7 tells us, even the highest mountains are covered 
with water. All human and animal life perishes. With this lone exception, only those who are inside the vessel of God's salvation, inside God's house, the ark, are delivered. And they are warm and dry and safe and well-fed as the ark is actually lifted up by the waters to the heavens, as the ark floats on the face of the waters of death. For those outside the ark, the floodwaters of God's judgment means death. But for those inside the vessel of God's salvation, under his protection, taking refuge in him, the floodwaters of God's judgment mean life. Now in chapter 8 and in the beginning of chapter 9, we read about the new world that emerges after God's judgment abates. Listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. Friends, it is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. God's word is sweeter also than honey sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. Listen to it now. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot And she returned to him, to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So Noah put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, that is, of Noah's lifespan, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, 
Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma, Yahweh said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Thus far, the reading of God's word. It is absolutely true. It is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've caused all the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning. Now, by your Spirit, may we read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this portion of your Word, that we might, by your grace and by your Spirit, hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, Many of us, I think, have a somewhat ambivalent relationship to God's judgment. Now, God's judgment is necessary, yes, we can acknowledge that, but do we really want it? Do we really long for it? Do we want it in our time, in our experience? Do we actually see God's judgment as an unequivocally good thing because it comes from a good God? 
The scriptures contain no ambivalence about God's judgment. Psalm 50, for example, just to pick one text among many, boldly declares this. Psalm 50 says, Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather, he says, to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the psalmist concludes, The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Read the Psalms. Listen to the promises and words of our Lord Jesus. Hear the cries of the prophets again and again throughout the scriptures. The judgment of God is what God's people long for. They anticipate it. They want it. They desire it. And one of the fundamental reasons that they long for the judgment of God is not just so wickedness would be restrained, but because God's judgment is the means by which God brings about a new world. It's the means by which he advances history forward to its ultimate conclusion. We see this in our Old Testament reading this morning, and and both of them actually. In Exodus 14, God judges the wickedness of Egypt. He brings his chosen people into a new world of freedom, a world in which there are new opportunities and new responsibilities. They're no longer in Egypt. They're in the wilderness, and they're headed somewhere new, the promised land. But this new world, of course, does not mean that things are easier, necessarily. In fact, in very short order, just a few verses after the destruction of Egypt at the Red Sea, the Israelites begin to complain about how it was easier, actually, when they were slaves in Egypt, when they were still back in that previous world before the judgment of God. Maybe it would be better for them, actually, if they could just go back to the way things were, where there was plenty to eat and they knew what their jobs were. But when God's judgment moves us forward into a new world, a new existence, there's no going back. We must embrace maturity, no matter how painful it might be, no matter what it might cost us. In a similar way, God's judgment of Judah and Jerusalem brought the exiles into a new world. A new world called Babylon. And this strange place, as Jeremiah assured them in the letter we read this morning, their life was not over. They were in a new place that God had brought them into. And yes, in that place there would be new dangers, new challenges, but also new opportunities for righteousness and wisdom and repentance and maturity, as the stories of Daniel and Esther and others will tell. In the death of Jesus, as we heard in our gospel reading, God's judgment was poured out on his son. And this judgment also brings a new world. We heard about that in our gospel reading. A new Adam in the garden with a new bride as Mary Magdalene stands in there for the church of our Lord, the bride of Christ. Indeed, God's judgment in the death and resurrection of Jesus brings God's people 
into something new, a new place, a new world. It was not necessarily, notice, a safer place, an easier place. Actually, there will be great suffering and persecution for the people of God in this new world. But there was no going back, no returning to what lay behind. That's what the whole book of Hebrews, for example, is about. Only forward into the new world that God's judgment has brought in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Beloved, this is what our God does. This is who he is. This is how he acts. He's always bringing us forward by his judgment, by his intrusion into our world and into our lives, into new places of maturity. And our passage this morning shows this in particular ways, how God's judgment brings a new world. In Genesis 8, we're in the middle of the flood story, right? The waters are covering the earth. Human and animal life outside of the ark has been extinguished. The ark is floating on the face of the waters. But then in the first verse of chapter 8, we read, but God remembered Noah. There's so much in that phrase, right? God remembered Noah. And he didn't just remember Noah. He remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. In the midst of his judgment, God did not forget his people. In the midst of his judgment, God, for that matter, did not forget the animal kingdom either. He remembered all of them, all of those who had gone into the ark according to his instruction, who had obeyed him in that way. And because God remembers his people in the midst of judgment, he causes a wind to blow across the waters. The wind blows, the rain stops, the waters begin to recede. They recede continually at that point, Genesis says, slowly but continuously. The waters begin to decline and go down, and a new world is being revealed. Five months after the rain began, five months after Noah and his family have gone into that ark and the animals, the ark comes to rest in the mountains of Ararat. The waters are continuing to go down. The new world is continuing to be revealed, but the ark hangs there, grounded on the mountain. The ark is so high up that Noah can't see down into the lower regions, right? Into the valleys, into the low places of the earth. And so he sends out birds to explore for him. The relationship between man and animal kingdom in these three chapters or so, which is fascinating to think about, right? This cooperation, this participation, this value that God again and again places on animals. The first bird that Noah sends out, a raven, he doesn't come back. And, And that is likely because ravens are carrion birds. They're scavengers. And so the reason he doesn't return to the ark is likely because there's a lot of things for him to eat, right? A lot of dead animals for him to live on and survive. Then later, Noah sends out a dove. The first time he sends the dove out, the dove comes back because doves don't eat dead animals. Doves eat plants. And the waters had not yet receded enough for living plants to grow in the ground. Noah then sends the dove out again, and this time the dove returns with an olive branch in her mouth, evidence that new plants are beginning to grow. One week later, Noah sends the dove out a last time, and this time the dove does not return. The plants are everywhere. 
There's plenty now, seeds and leaves and other things for her to eat and survive. And so finally, over one year after the rain began to fall, one year of life inside this house, this ark, the earth has dried up sufficiently. And God tells Noah and his family and the animals, notice the animals are not left out of God's instruction, to go out from the ark and to be fruitful and multiply. Now that phrase, to be fruitful and multiply, is an important one. Right? God has cleansed the earth. He has put it to death and raised it to life again. And by his judgment, he has made a new world for Noah and his family and the animals. And now he gives them the same commission he gave Adam and Eve at the beginning, to be fruitful and multiply, to spread out, to fill the earth. But notice in the first verses of chapter 9 how though in some ways Noah and his family are given the same commission as Adam and Eve, they're also given new things, new responsibilities, new freedoms in this new world that they now live in that has been brought about through God's judgment. Now, of course, this world as a whole is quite literally new, right? It has gone through a kind of real death and resurrection by being submerged under the waters and then emerging back again out of the flood. But the world is new as well in the sense that man's place in it has been advanced by God into new realms of responsibility and freedom. New maturity will now be required for man to live in this world that God has made through his judgment in the flood. In verses 2 to 4 of Genesis 9, Noah and his family are given new authority over the animals, authority that was not explicitly given in the same way to Adam and Eve. God says the animals will now fear and dread humanity in a new way. And God explicitly tells Noah and his family that the animals are now being given to them for food. Now this is different from what happens in Genesis 1. God tells Adam and Eve there that he has given them every plant and every tree with seed and its fruit for food. But now God is doing something new. In Genesis 9, he says to Noah and his family, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, referring back to Genesis 1, now I give you everything. I mean, that's a transition That's a new stage for man's life and his relationship to creation. But with this new freedom comes also new responsibilities. For the first time, God sanctions punishment of equality for when man sheds blood, his blood to be shed. The first time this is spoken of in the scriptures. He says to Noah and his family, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Not by God, but by man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. After the flood, man's authority over the animal kingdom is elevated and intensified. The animals now fear human beings in a new way, and they are given by God as food for humanity. And humanity's rule over one another, over human beings, is intensified as well. 
The point to see here, beloved, is that after God's judgment in the great flood, the world is no longer the same. And this is the way it always is, always, after God's judgment comes. God's judgment brings a new world. That's how it was after the Exodus. God's people, his church, were brought into a new world. They couldn't go back. Everything was different. That's how it was after God's judgment on Jerusalem in 586 in the Babylonian exile. The world changed. It was no longer the same. And that's how it was after the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's people were brought into a new world with new freedoms and new responsibilities. In many ways, the entire New Testament, the epistles of Paul and others, are about that very thing, this new world that they live in now after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And friends, these patterns of God's judgment, his intrusion into his world, are given to us so that we would be wise, so that we would understand our time as well. Now, friends, I don't know what lays before us in the years and decades ahead as our Lord Jesus Christ rules over human history. I don't know what he has for us, but I think it's pretty inarguable that we live in a time of widespread decadence and wickedness in our world around us, particularly in our immediate world, in this nation that we inhabit. And it seems likely to me that as I read the scriptures, that God, yes, delays judgment often, but he never allows things to stay in a bad place indefinitely in terms of wickedness and human evil. He just doesn't. He always judges sin. He always judges evil. Now, I don't have any idea of when that will happen, but I suspect that in the not-too-distant future, perhaps sometime in my lifetime or in the lifetime of my children, Unless there is widespread repentance and change, God's judgment will come in some way that we cannot even fully anticipate or prepare for in our nation, in our culture, in the world in which we live. It seems naive to me to think otherwise. But I want you to believe, beloved, as we read God's word, as we think about these things, is that we don't have to be afraid of that. We don't have to be afraid. We should not be afraid, actually, of God's judgment if and when it comes in our lives. Yes, when God judges, it is likely to be painful and disruptive and perhaps even cataclysmic in terms of the way that we are used to things being. It might involve suffering and difficulty. Indeed, it probably will. But friends, this is what God does. This is how he governs and rules the world, right? The flood was certainly painful and disruptive and cataclysmic for those who went through it, for Noah and his family, et cetera, et cetera. The exodus, the Babylonian exile, the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the way that God governs and rules the world. This is what he does. He judges evil. 
And even in the midst of that judgment, he preserves his people. He preserves his church, even as he preserved Noah and his family and the animals in his ark. And after that judgment, God always then brings his people into a new world. This is what God does. He has done it again and again in human history. I think he does it as well in the details and narrative of our own lives, if we think about it. And in the end, on the last day, his son, our Lord Jesus, will do this in a climatic and final way. He will judge all of humanity and bring his people out of their graves into a new world that he will raise from the dead and make for them. So friends, let's not be afraid of this. Let's not be afraid of the judgment of God. Let's hope that God judges in our time, in our life, that we might see it. Let's hope for it and long for it and look for it. For if God preserved and cared for his church through an absolutely cataclysmic and destructive worldwide flood, he will certainly care for and preserve us in the midst of whatever judgment he has prepared for our time. Friends, let's hold on to the wisdom of the scriptures. Let's say with the psalmist, not only about the last judgment, but also about God's judgment in our time. Let's say these things. Let's say our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. He says, gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Let us say this. Let us say the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, give us wisdom as we reflect upon your word. By your spirit, give us grace that we might hold on to these things, Lord. We might um, allow even this story, this narrative of Noah and your deliverance in the new world that was brought about through your judgment, that it might sink into our hearts and our lives. Give us faith, Christ, Lord, our Father, pray. Give us faith um, through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.